We will remember them and your prayers as they are traveling this week. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be fitting for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Today's scripture takes place in a church. Well, really a temple, but for our purposes, a church. Because like a temple, a church is a building that is set apart for the worship of God. It's a holy place that people treat differently. We sometimes call it God's house, as if God resides there. Like the Jews believed about the temple in Jerusalem. And this can be a very good thing. You see, we need reminders of God's place in our lives and in our society, and buildings that we set aside to worship God can serve that, no matter how big or small. So we say that a church is God's home, but do we show up to church expecting to have an encounter with the Almighty Creator? Sometimes, when afforded the chance, I might visit a beautiful cathedral made of stone and stained glass and be at all of the majesty, of the size and the scale of the church and feel as if this, this is a place that is fitting for God. But if we are honest, how often do we show up to our church expecting to experience God? There's a story about the Reverend Arthur Beecher. Now, he lived a little in the shadow of his siblings. There is Harriet Beecher Stowe. She was a famed abolitionist and author. And then there is the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher. He was the pastor of Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, New York. Henry Ward Beecher was an enthralling speaker, causing the Plymouth Church to grow rapidly and even become a tourist destination for folks who were visiting New York. Because he was an outspoken opponent of slavery, President Abraham Lincoln believed his voice was an influential voice in the outcome of the war. So much so that he asked Henry to raise the American flag over Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina at the end of the war. So for a Sunday when Henry had to be absent from the pulpit that he had made famous, he asked his brother, Arthur, to come down from his church in Elmira, New York, to do the preaching. When Arthur was announced, well, many in the congregation got up and began to leave. Well, Arthur quickly jumped up into the pulpit and called out, Those of you who came to hear Henry Ward Beecher may leave. Those of you who came to hear the word of God may stay. What draws us to church? Is it the personality in the pulpit? The quality of music from the loft? The architecture of the room? The friendships we have forged at church? Or do we really come anticipating that God may just show up? In our Christmas text this morning, two folks did show up in the temple expecting to see God. Simeon and Anna are examples of faithful people who are aware of God's story among the people of Israel. 
But more than aware, they expected God to continue to work. They were actively looking forward to the redemption of Israel. You see, things had fallen apart long ago when Israel and Judah were conquered and carried off into exile. And since then, many people had longed for a time when God would intervene and once again show his favor. Like we were challenged to do all of Advent, they were patiently waiting on God to show up. And in the meantime, they worshipped. Meaning, I think, that they had paid attention to God's word and looked for God wherever they went. So how did they recognize that this particular family, a young, poor family, displaced by the census count, carried the Messiah they had looked so long for? What was the telltale sign? Well, the text doesn't let us in on any detail that would give this family away. See, there was no angel singing, no great star in the sky that day. These two didn't have the benefits that the shepherds and the wise men had. What is described in the text is the practice of everyday faith on the part of both the holy family and on Simeon and Anna. They were just doing church on a normal day. Joseph and Mary were presenting Jesus in the temple according to the law as given in Exodus 34 that declares every firstborn belongs to God. And Numbers 18 says that instead of sacrificing the firstborn, like when a clean animal gives birth for the first time, families should redeem their firstborn with a monetary payment of five shekels of silver. Y'all remember these scriptures. It's very familiar, right? I had to look that up too. Likewise, a woman, after giving birth to a son, was deemed unclean for seven days. And then after that, for another 33 days, she was not allowed to enter the temple or touch holy things. Then, at the end of this period, the woman could come to the temple with an animal offering for purification. A lamb is required, unless the woman cannot afford a lamb, in which two doves or pigeons will suffice. One for purification and the other for sin. Luke places doves or pigeons in the hands of the holy family, which reminds us that they are poor. So why these details? Why are they necessary? Can't we just get to the good parts, the miraculous stuff? Well, may I ask, when was the last time you were involved in something out of the ordinary? Unexplainable, flashy even. The lesson is that God is involved in the ordinary activities of life, and yes, the ordinary activities of the church as well. On any given day, many families may have presented their firstborn son for redemption in the temple. What Mary and Joseph were doing was not unusual. They were simply being obedient. I'm sure it stretched them considerably to pay the five shekels and purchase two doves. Perhaps there were many families who viewed this custom as outdated and unnecessary. But for Mary and Joseph, they were faithfully following through with what was required to present their newborn son to God in the temple. And it caught the eye and the imagination of two other faithful people. Like Elizabeth, Zechariah, Mary, and John before, 
Luke says that the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. The scripture also says that Simeon was righteous and devout. Could this be why he was blessed with the Holy Spirit? The scripture doesn't say. But righteousness does have something to do with wanting and longing for what God wants over and above one's own self-interest. And being devout simply means being faithful, consistent practice. It seems that both of these adjectives are important for Holy Spirit welcoming. And the Holy Spirit is the active ingredient in initiating and recognizing the Messiah and his redeeming work. So it's Simeon and Anna's devoutness. Their devotion to God is found in obedience to the law and their worship in the temple that prepared them. And it was their longing, their desire for what God desires, which is another way to say their righteousness, that made them attuned to God and God's plan when the family from Nazareth appeared with two doves and a baby boy. Simeon's blessing on the baby further reveals his longing for his people, Israel, to live up to their calling as a light to all the nation. For a very long time, the Simeons and Annas of the world, those who long for what God cares about, had watched the world, including Hebrew society, live under man-made rules arbitrated by priests, Pharisees, and Roman authorities who place power and wealth as the highest virtue. But Simeon and Anna longed for God's favor and restoration to be placed on a people whose highest priority would be to live in a relationship with God and with one another that would reflect God's intentions for creation. Simeon and Anna were looking for God to intervene and to change people's hearts. What they recognized in this mundane setting was God at work. The long-awaited Messiah was before their very eyes. But Simeon was wise enough to recognize that the Messiah, who had come to set people free, who, according to Isaiah 61, was to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance on of our God on, and to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, and to bestow them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of spirit and despair, to, be, to call them righteous oaks, a planting of the Lord for, the, for his splendor. He knew that if that's what he, this Messiah was to do, this news wouldn't actually be good news to everyone who heard it. This required change on the parts of everyone. But change can be hard. Change for the status quo, those with power and influence, can be a dirty word. Change doesn't sound like a gift at all when the way things are is just fine, thank you very much. But for those who suffer, well, change is a long time coming. For everyone, however, change is going to be hard, which leads Simeon to predict that this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against 
so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. For those who misuse power from the highest levels of government, religion, and business to the smallest family-run businesses, even to local churches and nuclear families, this baby will grow to become a man who will reveal who they really are. When we encounter God, the false parts of our lives fall away and we are exposed for who we really are. Now, this can be difficult to come face to face with our sin, but God does not intend to keep us in a place of guilt and shame. Rather, seeing how we have tried to play God and failed, this can be a freeing thing. We've simply just got to admit that we aren't really in control, are we? The proud will have the hardest time with this. And so it takes people like Simeon and Anna to help recognize God and then faithfully join God in work that establishes God's authority. Folks like this are those oaks of righteousness that Isaiah foresees when God intervenes and sets things right. Such righteous behavior, Isaiah goes on to say, is like fertilizer that affects all of the soil, making it rich and nutritious, creating a garden that stops people in their tracks, one that is simply beautiful. In other words, righteousness can be offensive, but it can also be contagious too. For those who are humble enough to recognize their errors, the righteous behavior of others becomes an example to follow. So what did Simeon and Anna do that made them righteous and able to see and respond to God? Well, they were patient and they worshipped God in the midst of dark times. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna worshipped night and day in the temple. Now don't mishear the text. I don't believe staying put in an ongoing worship service is what God wants for his people. God has given us the gift, gifts to use, and much of that happens outside of the sanctuary. But our life should be one of worship in all we do, and never li- limited to one set place or time. Worshiping means being thankful for all that we see, for the people we encounter, for the family we share life with, for the skills and work God has provided us, and acknowledging that all we have to be thankful for is a good gift from God. When we see all of life as a gift, then the more we will be able to revere it, and the less likely we will be able to or be tempted to abuse this gift for our sole benefit at the expense of others. Well, Simeon and Anna were also righteous. Now, righteousness, when misguided, can be destructive. It's easy to become righteous about the wrong things, and in that misguided zeal hurt others in the process. Patiently waiting on God means we seek God's will in God's time. We can't get ahead of God, though it really is easy to do. It's easy to want to speak for God and assign right and wrong, blame and praise. But such righteousness, when out of step with God, does more to set ourselves apart from one another which in turn leads us to set ourselves over and against one another. 
So may we learn to wait for God and seek his righteousness. Then we will not be surprised when God shows up in places and even in people that seem unlikely. Are you missing God in the daily routine of life? Like me, do you sometimes expect God to only show up in moments that are flashy or incredible? Well, what if God is found in the mundane, in the everyday? And what if we are missing out on the blessings of that encounter? Simeon and Anna didn't miss God in the routine, and their joy in encountering the Messiah is evident. Today we stand at the end of one year and at the beginning of a new one. Where might God be found in this new year? How might you learn to encounter him? Perhaps it's found in our devotion to knowing God's word, to spending time in God's word daily, to come into contact with God. If you haven't done it before, maybe this is a year to really commit to reading the scripture through from beginning to end. And there are some great resources that are available for you. I'd love to tell you more about it if you're interested. It may also be in our faithfulness to worshiping God together. We can't discount how powerful this can be. God spoke through Simeon and Anna, and God will speak through others in our midst who long after what God cares about, what God longs for. John Robert McFarland, in his memoir about being a pastor, admits that he sometimes didn't expect God to show up. Or that maybe he didn't expect people in the pew to respond to God at work. I admit that most all clergy can fall into this trap from time to time, hopefully just for a, a moment or two. He admitted that preachers can get so used to an absence of response to their preaching that they begin to accept it. Then we are the ones that are most surprised when someone does respond. Well, McFarland tells of a time when, after preaching a sermon, the call went out, and he was surprised when a high school student came forward. He says David was probably 80% white, but for Indiana in the 1960s, the other 20% got in the way of folks seeing David as a brother, as a child of God. Now, David was bright, handsome, and athletic. He was a good swimmer, and he worked on the safety boat that patrolled the nearby lake. But folks in the church whose property fronted that lake couldn't continue to host youth picnics in their homes. You see, no black person was allowed on the land around the lake. Now, McFarland had been involved in this church for a couple of years when on one Sunday he gave this invitation at the end of the service to the gospel to respond to the gospel and out stepped David. As a pastor in the Methodist church, McFarland started with the normal questions to any person seeking membership in the church. As David affirmed that Jesus was his Savior and Lord, as he pledged his allegiance to God's kingdom, as he received and professed the Christian faith, and as he pledged to be loyal to his church through attendance, prayers, gifts, and service, a family, having themselves recently taken those same vows, got up and noisily stalked out, never to return. David heard them. He had tears in his eyes, but he didn't look back. McFarland continued with the Methodist liturgy. David, the Lord defend you with his heavenly grace and by his spirit confirm you in the faith and fellowship of all true disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Then, turning to the congregation, Brethren, I commend to you your love and care of David, whom we this day recognize as a member of the church of Christ. What is your mind to him? They read from their hymnals. We rejoice to recognize you as a member of the church of Christ and to bid you welcome to all its privileges. Your peace, joy, and welfare are now our own. With you, we renew our pledge to God and this church. Church can be an unpredictable and even dangerous place. You never know when God might show up. As a baby or as a young man, simply following the rituals of faith. Those rituals, too, are powerful when we take them seriously. They reveal who we really are, and they reveal a good and loving God who cannot be contained and may just show up in the most unsuspecting places. Where might you encounter God in 2018? How will you recognize God when you encounter him? Let us pray. Lord, may our hearts and our minds be set on you and your will in the coming year. May we long after what you long for. Amen.